Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another self-isolation special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. Welcome to the Moral Maze. We've spoken in recent weeks about leadership. It's non-existent in English football. Billionaire club owners and multi-millionaire executives are looking after themselves. The authorities seem too afraid to lead by example. And the PFA, under Gordon Taylor, come across as stubborn, cynical and uncaring. Now a lot of players want to do the right thing, so why not take the initiative and allow them to take wage cuts for the common good? Do you agree, Adrian? I do. Yeah, I've been fairly consistent on this since day one. But with every day that passes and, and more and more news of the financial strife, strife down the pyramid, that you wonder what's holding all this up. I do think there's too much self-interest in the game at the moment. It, it is distasteful. Everybody is looking after themselves. And there's a, a nervousness, obviously, about the, the TV money and, and whether that will be withheld. But going to your original question on the PFA if I may, I do think they're misjudging the situation. I also believe that most players would be willing to make a salary sacrifice to go into a pot to, to help out the staff at their own clubs and football in general further down the pyramid. I don't think that will be an issue, just a percentage of their salary to go into a pot. Now, the PFA have to protect players. We understand that. That's their job. And players, and, and, and I, you know, I'm a former member, or I suppose I'm still a member really, but technically a former member, they do have a bit of a hold over you, the PFA. And if they advise you to do something, you, you tend to listen and you have to act as one. And, and my understanding is that the PFA have told every player to hold fine, not to make any promises until there's a collective agreement. And I kind of get that from the PFA's point of view. But the longer this goes on without them making that sacrifice in terms of salary, then it becomes embarrassing. And I think that fans won't forget it and the wider public at large won't forget it as well. Just quickly to balance it out, it might not just be about money. It might be to do with player safety because that's important. If the Premier League or other leagues want to rush through the games when the situation is still unstable in terms of COVID-19 being around, maybe the players have a point there and they don't want to, to put themselves at risk. 
And also, if this quarantine issue where potentially we see teams put into quarantine to play behind closed doors, we agreed that that should be a last resort. If that is on the table, I also feel that the players' union would probably be against that. They wouldn't want to be away from their families, hold up in some kind of camp for weeks or months on end. So that might be a sticking point too. Yeah, I, I think it's down to leadership, isn't it, Seb? Because there's an example which I think it was Rob Draper of the Mail on Sunday tweeted about, which I thought was a really good point. Leadership is about someone like the Governor of the Bank of England contacting all the banks to say no dividends at this time, no bonuses. Now, surely someone like Richard Masters at the Premier League should have contacted his clubs to say no furlough pay until you sort this out, because it's become a PR disaster. Absolutely, Mike. I think we raised this in the last episode. I've heard nothing from Richard Masters at all, which is absolutely extraordinary under the circumstances. Adrian's right, I think, I I mean, I've never been a member of the PFA, but a lot of what he says sounds logical. But the problem has been the lack of information. So if this process, if the public could understand the means by which a player foregoes part of his salary, or the reasons why he may not, or the complications which are involved in that decision, then it would be a lot easier to tolerate. And and so PR is the right way to describe this. I mean, you haven't, uh, one of, I, I think one of Gordon Taylor's failings always is people understand that he has to act in the interest of his members, but there's so little compassion. There seems to be so little understanding for what the public are going through versus the life of your average, well, not average, but your the, the professional footballer in the public's mind, you know, that, that sort of stereotype that exists. And so it's been a case of, a failure to stage manage this properly and I suppose what you could say is the game doesn't really have football doesn't really have a czar does it it doesn't have an overlord in in the kind of the commissioner sense the way that it exists in, a, in American sport and so you don't have that one person who straddles all the different organizations and has ultimate authority over all of them regarding everything and that's been a weakness but I don't think that excuses the uh the lack of action the inertia from some of these people is incredible because they they're very, very keen to stick their head above the parapet on other occasions when it when it when it suits their interests, and that's been a that's been a great source of frustration. And I, I wonder just I wonder how forgiving the public will be of that as well in the future. Yeah, and we're I looking think... at the moral case here, aren't we? And I wonder whether or not there will be a fundamental financial reappraisal within the game after all this. I think it's probably inevitable, isn't it, Aid? Yeah, I think it is. There might be a recession of sorts. Well, there's bound to be, I think, in in the country as a whole, but but in football as well. Much obviously depends on on what the TV companies do. There's talk that they're applying the pressure to to have it finished by the end of June. I don't know if that's true or not. And that I keep seeing this 750 million pounds figure banded around in terms of the Premier League may have to give that back. If, if they fail to complete the season by the end of June. Now, again, it's it's about working together here, surely, isn't it? And I don't know the... Obviously, we don't know the contracts. We don't know what's being spoken behind the scenes. But surely, if everyone can work together, the TV companies, the clubs, the FA, the Premier League and the PFA, I think there still is a way forward here. I do think salary sacrifices have to happen from the players. There's a simple percentage of their wages to go into a pot. And then in regards to the TV money... And to make sure that we don't spiral into some sort of major recession, providing we are going to finish this season whenever, then I would imagine we're going to get the same amount of matches on TV, albeit at a later date. And to be honest, 
there'll probably be greater interest than, than ever in those matches when they come around. So hopefully TV companies can be flexible just the same as the leagues and the players as well. It's one of those situations where, where no one's going to win. We're all going to have to give up something, but I don't think it has to be calamitous. I really don't. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of manoeuvring going on, obviously. So I want to come to you about you know the club with which you're associated, Spurs. We've got billionaire club owners like Joe Lewis at Spurs, Mike Ashley at Newcastle, expecting the taxpayers to pay 80% of the staff, or 80% of the money that earned by the staff that they've furloughed. Now, here's a hugely successful financial model. Spurs were the most successful club in the Premier League in terms of profit last season. Trying to pinch a few pennies from the public purse. Now, that can't be right, can it? No, it's probably the first time in my, my life I've actually been ashamed of my football club. It's quite a hard position to be in because it's in, a, in an ideal situation. You'd want them to be a leader in this sort of scenario. You'd want to be proud of the organisation with which you're associated with, the, the one that you, you pay season ticket money to and that you buy the replica shirts from. But it was... Daniel Levy's statement, which if anyone listening hasn't read that, I suggest they go and read it and then, you know, continue to listen. It's one of the most tone deaf things I've I've come across. And I, I've got to be careful not to break any confidences, but I, I spoke to somebody affected by this yesterday and they told me that they weren't being paid for the rest of March. So they're able to bill the hours that they've worked at the club. So this is a part timer. But then within half an hour's notice, this was the new this was a new scenario that the club had presented. That person was a fan of the club. That person has, with no sense of melodrama, had their heart broken a little bit by this. Because I think what this situation entails is kind of this this hope that this hope that there's a sort of a big brother somewhere in the figurative sense, that there is someone that's going to look after you. And one of the people that, that fills that role is an employer, because that is the dynamic, and especially in times of crisis, and especially when, when that employer is as wealthy as a football club, a Premier League football club, and a, a Premier League football club, which quite rightly, Mike, you say, is extremely well run. Newcastle is different because Mike Ashley is a footballing supervillain. We know this, and I've always, <laughs> I've always suspected, you know, and we, we know it's because of his business practices elsewhere. We know that he quite enjoys pulling the legs off spiders. That's his thing. Um, he's tried to backtrack. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence he's very quickly trying to sell the club because I, I suspect his, his assets are a due a depreciation, which, you know, is, is hardly... Not, it's not something to, to cry over, I don't think. I think in practical terms, Aid, the thing mm. that astonishes me about the Spurs situation is that they've also furloughed their entire scouting and recruitment staff. Yeah. Now, you know, I've got my fingers in a few pies in the, in that community mm. and the guys are just astonished by that because yeah it, it, it's the one thing that's unaffected yeah it's, it's a cold-hearted business decision isn't it, it is, again it's it's misreading the the, the mood but it's a mad when, football decision eh? yeah oh this is a mad football decision yeah surely now is a key time for those in the recruitment department to catch up on all those matches that they never had the chance to look at and to study the players that were on their short lists or long lists to really nail it down. They've got time, let's face it, to sit there and go through dozens, hundreds of matches if they if they have time over the course of the next few months. I think that is a quite ridiculous decision from Daniel Levy to effectively hibernate his recruitment department. And yeah, I think morale inside that football club will be incredibly low at the moment and uh, there'll be 
elements of, of, of well, there'd be a lot of people dismayed. And and let's face it, when all this is is done and dusted, and when we all have the chance to to choose if we you know choose where we work, they might lose a little bit of their talent pool from within the staff on the back of this. I'm sure there's some very very talented people working for Tottenham Hotspur, and if they feel a little bit let down by what's gone on in the last few few days, then when the doors open to normality, they might look for employment elsewhere and that'll be to the detriment of Levy. Yeah. We don't really know what world they'll come back into. We've seen in the last couple of days, international football basically put on hold. The June internationals aren't going to happen, obviously. UEFA are... I think being quite responsible in terms of saying, look, we're not going to give you a date if and when the Champions League or Europa League are going to come back. We're just all on hold, aren't we, Seb? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a, a personal situation. I, we, I've pushed my wedding back by a year, which oh, is kind of... But, it, I mean, it, it was logical. I mean, and we, which, which is relevant to football because, I mean, that's a... You know, it's not on the same scale, but it's a large gathering of people. And it seemed like the most sensible approach just to, because of how fluid the situation is, you can't say, right, well, we can do this in three months time or four months time, because I keep hearing these dates, Mike. I keep hearing every day that I wake up and um, (laughs) sit inside, obviously, you know, you're hearing a new, right, we're going to do this in June and we're going to do this in in August and and July. And and my fiance and I were sort of discussing the logistics of our situation and the only way it made sense was to kind of to take the virus out of the equation completely, hopefully. Uh, fingers crossed and just say right we'll, we'll give it another year because mm. so within with that in mind I, I find it very difficult to to understand how anybody can be doing any sort of logistical planning at all mm. I mean with, with regards to any sort of competition mm. and I I think the sort of the general attitude and this goes back to what we said about overlords and, and czars and what have you I think it really would be helpful if we had a a sort of a clear guideline here, whether it comes from government or not, just say, look, you just stop talking about sport until July or whatever. Just, mm-hmm. just we're not even going to have the conversation until then. So you're not going to plan your, your, your quarantine camps or your TV deals because I, first of all, it's not important, but second of all, it's not really feasible to to be doing that sort of plotting at the moment. Yeah, I agree. What what a summer it's going to be in 2021. By the way, we've <laughs> yeah. got the Euros, the Olympics, and we got the Society event of the year. Seb Stafford Blodwell. <laughs> that's, that's if he survives the stag do. We're going to get hold of him for that. <laughs> Actually, that, 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 that was one of the benefits. So the stag plans got cancelled. So I, I just there was a, a bit of a wave of relief. I'm 35 years old now. I'm not. I'm not what I used to be as a person. So. Oh mate, 35. You're, you're a whippersnapper. Yeah, come on. This is... <laughs> uh, we can take you back to your youth, mate. Don't oh, worry dear. about it. Okay, that sounds like a threat um, to me. Listen, uh, chaps. You know, we're at a stage where. There's no football, but there's a lot of football to talk about and even still to watch. Now, BT Sport on Sunday are starting a series of you know, club-focused European nights where big games are being replayed. And it starts off with Manchester United. Four games are going to be shown. Juventus 2, Man United 3. The 2-1 win at Bayern Munich. The 3-1 win at Arsenal and the 7-1 home win over Roma. I just want to talk about a couple of those matches in a little bit more depth, probably. We'll start with that Juventus game. 2-0 down very early on. And to me, coming back to win that 3-2, I thought that was almost Roy Keane's finest hour in that game, where 
he basically got it by the scruff of the neck and ended up getting the booking, which made him miss the final. What do you think, Aid? Yeah, yeah, I remember the game. For me, it was Roy Keane's best performance in the Manchester United show. And we've talked a lot already about leadership on this show, and he showed it in abundance. Yeah, there was a couple of Inzaghi goals in, inside the first 11 minutes that, that put Juve up after a drawn first leg, and, and United were bang in trouble. And yeah, he just he just galvanised everybody, rolled up his sleeves, pulled them together. He scored a goal from, from a corner heading in and 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 his all-round performance was was frighteningly good and it was actually I'd say the 3-2 comeback win Andy Cole scored the winner six minutes from time I think at the time it was Sir Alex Ferguson's greatest night as Manchester United's manager obviously his his, his, his true greatest uh, evening was, was about to come not too far away but this was this was against the mighty Juventus teams didn't go away to Serie A Giants in those days and turn around deficits like that. I believe it was the first United win on Italian soil in eight attempts. 43 years it had taken United to win over there in Italy. And and, and it was a decent team, let me tell you, that Juve had that day. Conte, obviously we know him now as a manager. Deschamps, famous manager now. Uh, Edgar David, who was in his pomp. Zidane, of course, and, and Inzaghi too. So don't know, it, was, it was an outstanding performance. The United side w- was top draw. Interestingly, it was York and Cole that got the nod there. And, and later on in, in that competition, it was the turn of Sheringham and Solskjaer to, to come to the fore. But yeah, that was that was epic. And one of the great away performances in Europe by, by any team, let alone one by Manchester United. Yeah, we have become conditioned, haven't we, Seb, to English excellence in Europe. And it's interesting to look back and you think, well, United were through that night to their first European Cup final in 31 years. And, you know, as Aid referred to, that was their fir- the first win in 14 years, I think, in Italy. So it was almost the start of an era, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, because people forget how United struggled in Europe in the 90s. How also they, they sort of had to deal with like the, um, the three foreigner rule in the beginning as well. And... and I mean, they've all kind of merged into one and sort of, you know, they had odd nights like losing at home to Fenerbahce and that two-legged defeat to Dortmund, you know, and this wasn't this wasn't really the end of it either because I think they, I think I'm right in saying that they went out to Monaco the very next year. And it's, it's interesting because it's sort of, you could almost see Ferguson grow through the years. Like he'd, Every, every year there'd be something else, some other little bit of knowledge that he'd acquired about, you know, how to attack teams in Europe and what the balance between holding the ball and, and protecting, you know, results was. And, and it's interesting I, I brought up York and Cole because I, I've never, I'd never seen an English, I mean, I know Dot York's not English, but an English-based strike partnership perform like that in Europe, like dovetail like that. That was kind of, at the time, that was like the, that was the preserve of teams from from Spain or or, or Germany or Italy. And I, when I, whenever I think about that Juventus game, I, I still look back at the goal they combined for in Camp Nou in the group against Barcelona, when York stepped over the ball, Cole played it back to him. It's always felt like a little bit of a waypoint to me. And there was another moment in that Juventus game in, in Turin when the ball Andy Cole played for for Dwight York for the header for two two. At first glance, it looks like the kind of ball that Beckham would have played. And again, that's another instance of like of of English football sort of growing up to that point and it reaching a, a certain level of maturity. So it, it was actually fascinating to watch United at that time and that at that individual battle they faced. 
Yeah, absolutely. One other thing, Fergie got his tactics absolutely bang on that night. Obviously, in the end, he he went to four three three in European football, but it was four four two, and he sacrificed Paul Scholes. Yeah, that yeah. night he, he later came on and got himself a yellow, which put him out of the final, <laughs> famously. But but he was Nicky Butt alongside Roy Keane, so he went pragmatic, but then let those guys up top run free. I guess he started um, Jesper Blomqvist as well, didn't he, on the left in that game? Mm. I think he played for about seventy minutes. So it's um. Mm. Yeah, it was it was a really fascinating game. I actually I watched it on a. Do you remember those mini TVs, the huge aerials and the, the screens that were about? <laughs> so I, I was I was at boarding school in 1999, and um, wow. and so we weren't like we weren't allowed to watch TV beyond a certain point. So I remember I remember I remember trying trying to use one of those TVs and and trying to stick the aerial out the window, and then it just like so my memories of it are about in a screen of about ten centimeters tall. So so maybe, maybe we'll go with Adrian's recollections on that. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, you know, I, I there's a player. I'm still rocked from the boarding school shout, but look, we'll, 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 we'll tackle that later. Well, most most of us normal human beings, eh, basically, we you know we were brought up on cricket, and we used to you know get the old radios out, didn't we, and That's listen it, to it yeah. under the covers when when mum and dad couldn't hear. <laughs> but you know, as we were saying, as a player, and it's something that always gets me. You know, that night you had Keen and Skulls getting bookings, which meant they missed the final. Mm. I always feel that that's a massive injustice. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think I think we all want to see the strongest teams come through, the uh, strongest players available for, for the showpiece events. But at the same time, the accumulation of yellow cards over, over a tournament, you, you, it could be a very cynical yellow card that, you know, that prevents a goal. And is a yellow card sufficient there? I, I can look at that one both ways, actually. Personally, yeah, I'd I'd prefer amnesties to, to to happen so that that teams went into their into cup finals at full strength. But but I could certainly argue the case against it as well. So look, that's one for yeah football to to decide on down the line, I guess. Yeah, the second game I just want to look at is actually another almost overlooked signature United performance under Ferguson, the seven-one win over Roma. You know they went into that game two-one down from the first leg and basically swept the Italians away. I think it was three goals in, in eight minutes in the first half. I just want to dwell on, on the identity of a couple of those scorers, really. Michael Carrick got two goals on the night. He seems to be almost still quite criminally underrated for me. What do you think, Seb? Absolutely. I, I, Carrick's an example of someone that I, I think appreciation grew for him the more you watched him in person. If you ever actually sort of took a seat in a stadium and watched him in a Premier League environment where the play is so quick, the pressing is so fierce. And you saw the kind of the, he had this sort of one pace style, didn't he? He was never flustered by anything. And it's a great tragedy. I, I, I think he's one of the, the great misused players by the English national team over the years. I don't think that's, I don't, yes. I don't think that's yeah. contentious. He's one, <laughs> no. of the, he's one of the best players that I've, that I've seen in my lifetime. Certainly one of the best midfielders I've seen at Tottenham. And it, it's funny though, because that, that game, like you, you felt with his technique, he should have, I mean, he should have scored that kind of goal a little bit more often. I know that wasn't really his role at United under Ferguson, and he was sort of he was kind of an early incarnation of a metronome. But I still felt he had the abilities to be a little bit more three dimensional. And I don't blame him for it. I think I think that was just a question of what he was allowed to do on the pitch. But it's just had he been so, had he been someone that could have probably 
know, drilled in the occasional 30 yard and maybe five times a season. I think the appreciation for him, given the way that sort of public appreciation for football works, I think it'd been far greater in hindsight. Another of the early scorers, uh, Aid, was Alan Smith. Mm. You know, someone probably associated, if you, if, you, if you close your eyes and think of Alan Smith, you probably think of him in a Leeds kit, actually. He's someone who extended his career playing down the leagues, has coaching aspirations, as obviously does Michael Carrick. What sort of mentality does he embody? <laughs> Fight, scrapping things out. He, he was a he was a bit of a throwback, really, wasn't he, Alan Smith? I thought he was a really rugged, sort of down-to-earth lad. I, I, I've met him before. He was very, very normal kind of lad, no, no ego at all. And this was when he was at MK Dons a few a few years later. And yeah, I really liked him as a player. I thought he was terrific at Leeds. Didn't get much of a look in at Manchester United. Obviously, he got picked up a bad injury. But yeah, this particular performance this night, I think, was probably the highlight of his United career. And again, I have to say that it should probably go down as, as one of Ferguson's more inspired team selections. He had, you know, Rooney, Ronaldo and Giggs off of him in a 4-2-3-1. So it was, it was have the have the the grafter up top to, to put himself about, to dislodge the, the Roma defenders, just to be a handful and to lay the platform for the more gifted players behind him and around him to shine. So, so yeah, Smith was a really key man in, in this victory. And Rooney as well, I think. Rooney and Ronaldo were great that night. And Rooney, if memory serves me right, I think he spent a lot of the game on the left wing, which many of us sort of bemoaned down the years. What's he playing on the left wing for? Um, but sometimes... He did, a, he did a wonderful job defensively and, and an attacking sense in that position. So, um, yeah, phenomenal performance. Because Roma, they, they were good at the time and they had a, had a fantastic defence in particular. So this was one of the great Old Trafford performances. No, no question about that. Yeah, and actually, you know, if we forget, actually Milan, who were the only non-English team in the semis, won the trophy after beating United in the semi-final. And, you know, OK... United featured in three of the next four Champions League finals and you know, beat Chelsea on pens in Moscow. I suppose the these sequence of matches poses a question about the context of all these players. Let's try and get our heads around a composite United team that has played in Europe, be it the European Cup or the Champions League. I threw this out to the listeners uh, yesterday. Got a couple of really interesting uh, replies back. One of which was from uh, Ross Mosby. Now, his team, which we'll use as a basis for our chat, was in a 4-4-2. De Gea, Evra, Ferdinand, Vidic and Gary Neville was a back four. Beckham, Skulls, Keane and Ronaldo. Rooney and Rude van Nistelrooy. Now... Frankly, because I'm a, an oldie, I will I will put a couple of other older players in there. What do we think of that as a, a basis for discussion? Yeah. Well, it's a strong team, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I, I well, goalkeeper. You know, I, I would go yeah. with Schmeichel rather than oh, De Gea. Yeah. yeah, well, De Gea would, would, would be third on my list. Yeah, I would have Schmeichel and then Van der Sar and then De Gea. Not, not because De Gea is not a good goalkeeper. I just think from performances in, in European competition and simply because Michael is, is the best I've ever seen, I think, in, in my lifetime. 
between the sticks, certainly in, in the Premier League. So yes, Michael get would get would get my nod in goal. I don't know where you guys stand on that. Yeah, I'm up for that. Yeah, I think what mattered to me is like Schmeichel. If he, if he, if Schmeichel played now, I wonder how much for a, a, a problem his distribution would be. I mean, he'd still have his long throw and his booming punt, but like, <laughs> you know, would, would there be a Guardiola saying, no, 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 you can't play, I'm playing Bravo instead because he's better with his feet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to be a madman to do that. But oh, yeah. Honestly, Schmeichel, okay. Schmeichel uh, he was, I think, I think if I'm picking a team, what I want at the back, I want leaders at the back. And Schmeichel seemed to terrify people. I think I think Gary Neville probably still wakes up in a cold sweat thinking of like being being yelled at by <laughs> by, by Peter Schmeichel. But he was just so commanding. And I remember I even now like I, I can see um I can see that performance against Newcastle. You remember when, when United got absolutely battered at St James's Park and he just stood up to everything and then Cantona scored in the second half. It was it was uh it's one of the great goalkeeping performances in Premier League history. And it also like I know he was past his best by nineteen ninety nine, but but I mean, it would have been out of sight without Schmeichel. He made an excellent save from Mehmet Scholl, I think. Made a pretty good save from Carsten Janker, and he was involved in the equaliser, of course. So, you know, mm. but he was just—he mm. was great. He was—he was—he was less a goalkeeper, more kind of like a—he's like a, a character from um, from the Iliad, isn't he, Peter Schmeichel? He's uh, <laughs> amazing goalkeeper. Yeah, and also, you know, that they talk about building from the back. You have to have that solidity in the centre. Ferdinand and Vidic were a fantastic partnership, weren't they? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely brilliant partnership, and 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 there's a strong argument for for that being their greatest centre back partnership. There'd be a few other contenders from down the years, you know, in consideration. But no, that, that it worked well, well like, didn't like it? Like Bruce and Palace, the moment. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, but 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 for me, in my team, I, I'm actually going to go for for Stam and Ferdinand just just because I think. At the time, when Yapstam was a Manchester United player, I thought he was one of the best centre halves in the world, and I think he didn't always have the the strongest partners. You know, like guys like Ronnie Johnson came in and and played alongside him, and I think Yapstam, until he fell out with Fergie, was just immense. And and that run in in '99, he, he was key in. So for me, I'd go Stam and Ferdinand, but but look, it's hard to argue against Vidic and Ferdinand. What about left back, Seb? Straight choice between Evra and Dennis Irwin. I'd go for Irwin personally. No, I've been controversial, Mike. I've gone, I've <laughs> gone, <laughs> I've gone three-five-two with wing backs. So wow. I've I've played a little bit fast and loose with formation. How many times have United done that, Seb? Never, Come on. But I. But it, this is the thing, Ed. So I, I wanted to like I've got Stan and Ferdinand as my centre halves, yeah. but also I'm yeah. a romantic, so I've put Bill Folkson as the third. Ah, I've got to have my. Um, my my future wife has just raised a, a, a quizzical eyebrow at I'm a romantic. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've, I've got to, I've got to, I've got. To. Oh, you've been the wedding, mate. <laughs> I've I've got to have both Munich survivors in there. So I've always got Bobby Charlton ahead. But I so my wing backs are uh, Gary Neville on one side and uh, and not that it he was it was his natural position, but Ryan Giggs on the other because I'm sure he could do he, it. He could do it. Yeah, yeah, he could do it. He could yeah. definitely do it. So I've got that sort of uh, if we're looking at wide people further forward. I think we've got to have George Best, and I think we've probably then got to have Ronaldo. Agree? No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, a... on, on this, yeah, for me personally, I, because I never saw them in the flesh, I, I've just gone for players from my generation. So I've gone a little bit, yeah, I've, I've, I've probably gone against the brief here. Obviously, George Best should be in the team, and probably Bobby Charlton as well. But, correct. But yeah, Absolutely yeah, I, correct. I'm going differently. So my two wide men in a 4-4-2 would be Cristiano Ronaldo 
and and Ryan Giggs. Yeah, but but yeah, I, I bow to your judgment on on, on the past players. Yeah, I, th- I thought well, I, I watched the best documentary last night. You know, his descent into alcoholism and and premature death, and some of the the clips there. In, you know, against Benfica in '68, it they were just magical. You know, we talked about Maradona a couple of episodes ago, and the whole idea that he was almost welded to the ball. That's exactly yeah. the same as Best. I thought he was fantastic. Mm. Yeah, no, I've seen the videos and, yeah, I mean, he's just a mesmeric player. Yeah, if you were going for all time, I think you'd have to, you'd have to probably put him in instead of Giggsy, wouldn't you, on, the, on that left-hand side. So, um, yeah, he's had a, had a few decent wingers, haven't they, Man United? Certainly have, certainly have. So if we um, you know, move on from Manchester United, we'll still be in nostalgia mode, don't worry about that. You know, we've been talking in this series about, the tournaments which had a big effect on us. You know, I, I launched it with Euro 84 in France. Seb, what was the tournament that got you going? So I chose France 98, Mike. I mean, the first tournament I remember is Italian 90. USA 94 had its spikes and its good moments. In Euro 96 has been kind of nostalgia to death now, hasn't it? So, and it, it, it kind of means the same thing to everybody born in England, I, I think. France 98 was probably the moment I became aware of just how wide the football world is in terms of the quality of sort of the, these new aspirant countries that obviously as I've got older, you know, I, I've, you know, my knowledge has increased. I understand the heritage of football in these places and, and I understand the roots of the success that I saw in 98, but I enjoyed seeing sort of Morocco and, you know, Musafa Hadji and that Nigerian team that came back against Spain. Also Chile players like Zamorano and Salas. And I, I remember it was just a, a time of discovery because it was the internet existed, but not in the way that it does today. And so sometimes when you when you were putting on these group games, again, in my with my portable television at boarding school, because this is a year <laughs> earlier than 99, um, you're seeing players for the first time and, and you're seeing things for the first time. Like I'd never, I'd heard about, for instance, Jose Luis Silva taking free kicks as a goalkeeper, but I'd never seen it. I'd never seen a team attack the way that Mexico did. Mexico had two great comebacks in that tournament against Belgium and later against Holland, I think. And there was just a, a different style of football. There was a, a level of flair to their play. And, and it was, so it was this sort of, it was me, it was kind of the building blocks of my football knowledge in a way. It's kind of, it's a, it's a cliche, but it was a broadening of horizons moment because I didn't grow up in a, a Sky household. My mum was pretty against that for a long time. And so my football was uh, either going to Ashton Gate to watch Bristol City, going to the Manor Ground to Oxford United, or very, very occasionally being allowed to go to, to, to London to watch Spurs. Or when I was at home, watching the big match on ITV on a Sunday. Now, with all due respect to all the players that flowed through the big match on a Sunday, to go from that to this rainbow of football in 98. And also, one of, one of, one of the really underappreciated aspects of it is, two, good time zone, because that's really important for a World Cup, mm. especially if you're younger. But mm. two, the aesthetic of it. I love watching football in France. I love the stadiums. I love the camera angles. I love the the color of it, and it's it's really really important because every World Cup has its own sort of has its own unique aesthetic identity, and I love France '98. Mm. I wish every I wish every World Cup looked like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. and so the whole experience. It was a really weird tournament for me to cover because I had a 
a, a roving brief which didn't really include that much of England. So I was able. I started watching Brazil in Nantes because they'd lost to they lost to Norway. Yeah, uh, Italy. I saw in Montpellier the French at Stade de France. I think I saw them beat Saudi Arabia four 0 I think from memory. The Dutch absolutely murdered South Korea in yeah. Marseille. My only two England games, <laughs> they lost. The the defeat to Romania and then obviously the Argentina psychodrama. What were your memories of England in that World Cup, Aid? Oh, I was a South End United player at the time. So I remember it was was the second major tournament, the first first World Cup, where players of my age, players that I'd played with, were involved. I have to confess, there's an element of envy there. Because guys like like Beckham and Sol Campbell, I'd known since, since we were kids, I'd played with and against them many times and there they were on the TV playing at the World Cup finals in their pomp and and yeah there was a little bit of me that that wished that you know that, that wished I was there but 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 I did turn myself into a fan the Argentina game stands out and watched it in a pub actually in South End I'm still celebrating Sol Campbell's disallowed equaliser at least a minute beyond uh, <laughs> beyond it being disallowed I don't think I was the only one um my memories of England I Ultimately, I think it's, it's, it's under achievement, and not just from the players, probably from Glenn Hoddle as well, who, who I think was a, was a very good coach and, you know, excellent football in mind. But I, I don't think he really had a, had a great tournament. I, I don't think his team selections were, were always spot on. I, th- I do think in that Argentina game, he, he got his substitutions wrong. And, and by the time the shootout came around, a lot of our... A lot of our best penalty takers weren't on the pitch, and yeah, it was it was it was, it was deeply frustrating. Beckham, I felt really sorry for because I knew him as a person, and, and, and to see what happened to him afterwards, with with the public turning on him, was was awful. That was um, the birth of bitterness, wasn't it? Yeah, it was awful. Yeah, it really was. I didn't like that at all. And um, but on the on the plus side, I mean, Burkham, who I'd played with was sensational for Holland. Um, that goal against Argentina, yeah. an absolute classic, will, will stay with me forever. And yeah, he, he he was sublime. And Ronaldo, of course, was was the player of the tournament, wasn't he? He, he was just, just so fun to watch. And what <laughs> happened to him ahead of the final remains the big the big story, I guess, of, of France 98, apart from the great French team winning it, particularly that wonderful defence. But yeah, what happened to him? You know, we, we think he had a, a fit, don't we? reports that it might have been a panic attack maybe maybe we'll never get to the to the bottom of it but but yeah one minute he was he was off the team sheet wasn't he for the world cup final then he was on it but he was out there on the pitch in in spirit only wasn't he he, he was a shadow of his his usual self yeah quite a remarkable climax to that tournament really yeah that i wish i'd have been there because of the complexities of trying to work out how to cover other sports i i had to miss the final to cover the British Grand Prix of all things, oh, no. which really just... Uh, and when I saw a story of that magnitude unfold, you know, as a journal, you want to be there. And there have been so many conspiracy theories launched over the years about that. In a, in a way, that final defines that tournament. One, because of the controversy, but two, the scenes on the Champs-Élysées afterwards were unreal it was that cliche come to life that a country was united by football do you get that seb 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's actually a really good point for a plug, Mike. All of those scenes on the Champs-Élysées, they feed into a, a documentary, which I think is still on Netflix, called Le Bleu, which is about how French society reacted to that and how it evolved between 1998 and their, their World Cup success in 2016, or their, their European Championship campaign in Euro... Yeah, Euro 2016, and then and then I, I don't think it actually stretches up to World Cup 2018, but it's it's a great documentary, and it deals with kind of all these fragmented parts of, of French society and and the way that that team was seen and what re- what it represented and the kind of the political machinations around it. It's uh, it's fascinating, and obviously pretty at the moment pretty good time for people to be to be discovering new documentaries, fortunately. But it yeah. was it, it's a yeah, great moment. Yeah. Sorry, Eddie. Oh, absolutely. I was just going to say the multiracial element there, you know, the, the French people, you know, a country full of different ethnicities, isn't it? But yeah. the back four of Barthez and Turam, Blanc, Desailly, I know that Blanc missed the final for Le Berth, Lizarazu, I mean, just an iconic sort of back five. But but that, I think, yeah, just, yeah, the way they, they, they united as a, as a unit was almost typical of France as a whole, as a nation. It, it was fantastic. It was a great climax. It was just... I think for anyone that's not French, it was just a little bit scarred, wasn't it, by the fact that Ronaldo, the best player, w- was ill for the final, yeah, yeah, and and, and that and that that kind of stained it for me. But but it was sensational competition. Yeah, you know, I said earlier on that we've got no football, but we can't stop talking about football. And you know, I'm looking at the clock now, and we're on on the verge of running out anyway. <laughs> just to give everyone notice, you know, I, I did talk beforehand about using this episode to talk about almost like the ABC of Premier League management and and we can apprise managers maybe four by four. So I just want to put you guys on notice. When we do this on Monday, we'll start that series with looking at four coaches, Carlo Ancelotti, uh, Mikel Arteta, Steve Bruce and Sean Dyche. And we'll use this as a series going forward for the duration. But for for now, I still think we, we should do a couple of little snippets of transfer news although that does seem increasingly obscene to talk about in current circumstances you know we've still got the Pogba business going on at Manchester United the latest is maybe a swap with Juventus and Delict. I actually think they'll get the better of the deal if they get Delict. what do you think Aid? yeah yeah definitely Delict. yeah for some reason I'm, I'm quite surprised that he hasn't settled better at Juventus. Very talented central defender, better than what Manchester United have got, I guess, alongside Harry Maguire. So Pogba, I think, is a, is a spare part, really, at Manchester United now Now that they've got Bruno Fernandes. I think they do need to get shot of him. And if they can do come up with some kind of swap deal with De Ligt, that that would be that would be a result, I think, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Yeah, and I can see that one um, having legs. At Spurs, Seb, you know, we've seen Jose Mourinho posing very prettily in their um, sort of remote training videos. <laughs> He's already talking about needing six players this summer. Yeah. Um, one that's come to the fore, Dejan Lovren, uh, who's probably now <laughs> surplus to requirements at Liverpool, either to Arsenal or Spurs. What do you think? I think I think his agent's been busy, Mike. I think I, I just, I mean, I, 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 no, absolutely not. No, he's a catastrophe <laughs> of a defender. But I expect to see Ledley King playing at centre half for Spurs before Dejan Lovren again. You know, because it, like you just, you this, this, this is a situation seemingly where like we we know he's leaving Liverpool and he's been a good servant to Liverpool and he's sort of taken his demotion in in seemingly good spirits, but he is not 
anywhere near the calibre of player that either Tottenham or Arsenal need at the back of all because he, he's not an improvement. I mean, Dejan Lovren is not an improvement even on a you know a, a past his best Herbie Alderweireld. Not an improvement on Davison Sanchez. I think I'd start you one fourth before him as well. He's he's a he cannot step onto football pitch without making mistakes, and that is absolutely not what Tottenham need. <laughs> Sorry if yep. that's harsh, but I, I, I've been in isolation for eight days now. Like I, I <laughs> I'm, I'm not at my okay, most cordial. Right. <laughs> Just a final point then. Our thoughts for the day. Aid, I think you want to talk about Rocky Roadcastle. The great documentary was uh, shown about him earlier in the week. You played with him, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. I feel really sort of privileged and proud to have played. Played alongside Rocky. It was the anniversary of his his you know, tragically early death earlier on in the week, and and rightly so. And I think it will go on forevermore. Arsenal recognised it. Arsenal fans on social media paying tribute to, to Rocky. Yeah, he he was just a great guy. I grew up watching him as a as a schoolboy with Arsenal, getting the tickets to the games, and he was a, a wonderful role model as a right winger. His thick thighs of his, but a really powerful player but so skillful, always looking to take defenders on on the outside, would, 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 would score some great goals, just driving it into the far corner. I remember at the clock end, so many goals that he scored right in front of me. And then I got to, got, got to play with him, only really in sort of training ground games because I was so young at the time. But, but yeah, just a, an absolute gent and someone that would, would encourage you, even though I might have been 15, 16 at the time, you know, in the school holidays, going up there playing in a sort of reserves v first team game, and he would be talking to you during the game. You know, just just giving you little bits of encouragement. Very very nice bloke. Yeah, a genuine Arsenal legend. I mean, in terms of what he did on the pitch as well, because that nineteen ninety one title winning side. Obviously, he was involved in eighty nine as well, which is iconic for all Arsenal fans. Anfield eighty nine, but he was also part of the ninety one team, and and that team only lost one game. They were almost invincible, and and Rocky was, you know, brilliant in, in that as well. So, so yeah, yeah, just a, just a true legend, and yeah, that's my thought for the day: is just remembering Rocky, just a, a great person, great footballer. Nice one, nice one. Anything you want to get off your chest, Seb? Go and find David Rocastle's goal at Old Trafford if you've never seen it. I mean, it's that that's that's who the player was. I mean, it's um, an amazing, amazing bit of skill. I think I would, I'll probably be a bit pious actually, Mike. I think it's the time for people to pay attention to the way their football club is behaving and then with the grace of God hopefully when when this is all over to remember that to keep that in mind to to understand sort of how some of these organizations think of their supporters um I think that's really important I said I'd hope rather than expectation because we know what the game does and you mentioned tribalism in the last episode it's been very disheartening for these organizations which sort of as, as soon as people aren't there to buy the shirts and pay for the tickets it's almost as if the mask kind of slips and I I hope people don't forget that. And, you know, different clubs will be behaving in different ways, but I, I think it's very, very important to pay attention to to what they're doing at the moment. Yeah, we keep using that word, don't we? Perspective. And, and for me, how exactly does that fit with transfers costing in excess of £100 million? Can't get my head around that. Football's financial model has broken and it won't be a quick fix. I think we've got to come to terms with that. Thanks anyway for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. We'll see you soon and please stay safe out there.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 